This official podcast coverage of OzCert's 2012 conference is brought to you by Arbor Networks. Smart, available, secure. Datacom TSS. Discreet, niche, tailored. And Sophos, secured. Hello everyone and welcome to this special podcast from OzCert's 2012 conference. I'm Patrick Gray. Don't forget, you can head over to risky.biz slash OzCert for all of our OzCert podcasts. Uh, or if you'd like to get them on iTunes, just search the podcast store for RB2 or Risky Business 2. Yesterday, I caught up with OzCert speaker, SCADA security expert, Mark Fabro of Lofty Perch. He is the president and chief security scientist for Lofty Perch. Now, we spoke about attempts by governments to mandate minimum security requirements for critical infrastructure through regulation. We're hearing more and more about government attempts to regulate, you know, privately owned critical infrastructure and the security of the SCADA systems that run them. So I started off by asking Mark uh, what regulation attempts in North America look like already. Here he is. Well, I, I think it's safe to say that there's only a couple of sectors out of, in, in the U.S. particular, they've got 18 critical infrastructure sectors. Most, if not all of them, have the SCADA component to them or the control systems component to them. I think that save for a couple of them, uh, nuclear and uh, uh, power grid type bulk power system operations at generation and transmission, there really isn't any sort of mandatory regulatory compliance being pushed out. Uh, federal organizations are having a hard time getting the enrollment of the upwards of 90% of the asset owners who own critical infrastructure to come to the table. Now, organizations like DHS are sponsoring things like the Industrial Control Systems Joint Working Group, and there are specific functions in those working groups to try and find out what the appropriate balance is going to be for introducing some sort of regulation with regards to cybersecurity. Now, a lot of people would think that this is a, a foreign concept that's not going to fly, but actually, there are asset owners that are looking for specific ubiquitous guidance in their sector. And perhaps more importantly, the vendors seem to be interested in getting a seat at the table to understand what they need to do to help organizations be compliant. When you get into regulatory compliance, though, the issue is who is going to develop the regulations and the standards to which the asset owners comply. And I think that the good news in the U.S. and in Canada is that the people that have a seat at the table helping shape those regulations are the asset owners themselves. So we're seeing this very interesting dynamic where you have the asset owners creating the regulations and the guidance that they need for their own community of interest. I guess also one of the problems that you might run into when you're trying to introduce a regulatory regime dealing with security and control systems is that they're quite different from site to site, aren't they? Uh, yeah, well, it's not so much site to site, but as much as it is from sector to sector. Uh, and you do see some sort of commonality from site to site because the asset owners do share common communities of interest for what it is they do. Um, there, make no mistake that there are asset owners that are trying to redefine their critical assets so that they wouldn't even be considered critical, even though that you and I would both look at them and say, well, those are obviously very critical. But you, you see some standardization among the, the sector components and the asset owners trying to, to say, how do we standardize and level set what we need to do as a community to, to make our environments more secure. What I'm wondering though is, you know, we're talking about a regulatory regime being hoisted onto essentially a problem, a security problem affecting control systems, which is colossal in depth and scope. Is there much that regulation can do? I mean, or do we really need to be having a fundamental rethink about how we roll control systems? 
This, this is great. This is a great, great question. Because traditionally, and I won't be the first person to say it, is that the fear of regulation or the fear of audit against a regulation greatly exceeds the fear of being totally compromised from a cybersecurity incident. Right? There is an, there is a stigma attached with failures for compliance from regulatory. And the, the entities that are regulatory, monitored from a regulatory perspective in the U.S. and Canada that fail, it becomes public knowledge about how they fail and how much they have to pay in audit damage. You are absolutely correct in, in stating that this is a monstrous problem to try and solve how we approach introducing palatable but malleable regulatory issues that, that the community of interest, the asset owners themselves, can sign up for. And there are communities out there thinking, well, the way to do this is by, by punishment, right? You've got major publicly traded entities. Maybe something the SEC, the Security Exchange Commission, actually has to do is step in and say, well, the regulatory compliance is going to be complete disclosure for cyber incidents because that affects shareholder value. Failure to do that, now you're looking at specific you know, specific penalties from SEC. I think that the federal governments in North America are very interested in exploring regulations, but they are not going to have that conversation without the enrollment of the asset owners. So there is a component of the complexity introduced by trying to get the asset owners to come to the table as well. But remember, never forget, you do have certain sectors, there's certain elements of transportation, of nuclear energy, of uh, bulk power system operations, and some chemical components that are regulated from a cybersecurity perspective. Push that, uh, pushing that out to the asset owners in the uh, private domain becomes a little bit harder, which creates this very substantial problem, as you said. Well, I, I guess another element to this is that most networks where they're operating under a compliance regime, they're trying to just generally keep things tight, not be idiots, you know, not have the Russian mafia completely owning them sideways, that sort of thing. When we're talking about control systems, the natural attacker, for, you know, you threat model a, a, a gas pipeline, the attackers you've got to worry about are likely state-sponsored. Have you ever seen a control system deployment that would resist a determined attack from someone with the capabilities of, say, the, you know, the U.S. defense industrial base? Well, I think it would be foolish to assume that there's any system out there that's going to be completely resilient and defendable against an adversary with what could be, you know, it sounds like you're talking about unlimited funds with unlimited capability or opportunity or intent to actually do this. So I've never seen one that would withstand everything because we often see very, very secure systems that have extensive defense in-depth technical countermeasures that actually are penetrated directly or indirectly on purpose or accidentally from uh, mobile malware on a USB stick that just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong, at the wrong time. Now, now, we also are dealing with the problem, as you say, of you know, state-sponsored issues. You, you want to use the term you know, uh, uh, sophisticated, high-impact specific threats out there that are going to have a determined effort to try and get into control system environments. What we're not seeing is, is incidents where you have attacks on the system to compromise the system and make it fail. It's much more instances of uh, information extraction, learning about the process. But if the question is, is, have we ever seen a system that is totally resilient or capable against that? No. And, and the reason is, is that you know as well as I do, and I'm sure your listeners know, the farther you scale up in intensive granular security, you, you have to impede the performance function. Well, and this is, this is the, the, the fundamental problem with SCADA, right? Is, you know, it's, everyone says, well, the answer is to air gap it. 
you air gap it, you make it unworkable. You've got worker safety issues, you've got all sorts of problems uh, you know, down the line. It just causes too much of a headache for, for everyone. You can't patch things. Like, it, it's just a nightmare, right? So you've got to keep these things online. They've got to be connected. Largely, a lot of them have got to be unpatched. This is why I ask, I mean, can, is bolting regulation onto this problem actually going to do anything? That, that's a great question. I don't believe that regulation, I believe that there are certain circumstances where you're dealing, when, dealing with when the su su sufficient compromise of the asset in a particular sector will clearly result in massive economic or national security or safety issues, right? And that's why you have them for nuclear. I don't know if regulation is the answer as much as trying to get the asset owners enrolled in looking at appropriate strategies to secure the system in a balanced nature with productivity. Now, you raise the issue is that, you, well, air gapping doesn't work because it's, you know, you've got safety and stuff. It's actually economic driven. I mean, we're missing, we're losing the air gaps because the information that has to come out of the production environment has to be able to fuel the supply chain, the just-in-time management markets in the energy sector and things like that. So, so you're a believer in air gapping as an approach in control systems? I think that, I think that air gapping... As a, as a mitigation, I think that air gapping is it's not by any means to be considered the perfect solution. It doesn't happen. We do investigations on air gap systems all the time that have been infected or have been compromised. It actually has nothing to do with the compromise of the interconnectivity between the networks. It's not even at a network level, never even explored that. It had something to do with removable media or it had you know, disgruntled internal employees. What I think is really important that's going on right now is prior to the introduction of regulations, we are now understanding how to take contemporary, off-the-shelf IT security solutions and figure out how they need to be customized and modified to accommodate for the nuances that we see in industrial automation. People say, well, talk to me about crypto. Well, crypto introduces latency, but there are some crypto solutions because of the compression algorithm make the data move faster. We go, well, we've got intrusion prevention system. One of the countermeasures in those is packet dropping and packet scrubbing, which is traditionally a non-starter for a control system environment because it's, a, it's you question the integrity of the data. Of the data. But yet intrusion prevention systems by themselves in passive mode can learn the normal operational envelope that would be needed to create intrusion detection signatures, right? So what we're doing right now is learning how we take, without reinventing the wheel, creating any new technology, taking contemporary IT security solutions, methodologies and frameworks, porting them over to the control system space. When we get that figured out and we know what's working, that's going to give us a better baseline and framework to start talking about regulatory compliance because that gives everybody a common ground to work from and measure from and that's what regulation is all about. Now uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it but uh, uh, I think it was like a year or two ago uh, the National Academy of Scientists or Sciences or that, that group in the United States did a review for the Department of Energy uh, on the use of probabilistic risk assessment driven approaches to securing DOE nuclear material complexes. Oh no it was actually nuclear missile uh, complexes. So uh, Basically, the Department of Energy wanted to embrace probabilistic risk assessment, that sort of approach, so that they could cut costs because, you know, security costs at, their, at those nuke facilities were just going through the roof. That report concluded that probabilistic risk assessment was just completely a completely inappropriate way of trying to address the problem because the consequences of an attack on a nuclear weapons complex were just incredibly uh, serious. So... I guess what I'm asking is we're, we're talking about things very much from a, from a probabilistic risk assessment point of view, which is it's all about finding a balance between, you know, this and that. Whereas, you know, in the case of the Department of Energy, they really looked at things like 
they looked at really building resilient security and just ditching the, the probabilistic model altogether. Do you? Th it's pretty radical, but do you think that that's an approach that might one day be considered in the case of control systems in critical infrastructure? Ah, this is a brilliant question. The word probability is what stuck out in that discussion. People, for the longest time, have been trying to get a better grip on the probability of certain instances or events happening, cyber incidents for their system. Because if you look at risk as a function of threat, vulnerability, and consequence, having a probability function would absolutely empower the asset owner to figure out what they need to do and balance security. Probability works very well for safety. Industrial automation historically was built on... This, this is what the report found. It found that it was very good at looking at the failure rates for rivets and things like that, not for determined malicious attackers. Exactly. We can't make the mathematics at this point in time really work for cybersecurity because safety was built on hazards, right? You can calculate the probabilities for failure rates and hazards that give you safety. That's why you have safety insurance and integrity levels that are assigned to control systems and safety systems. We can't do that for cybersecurity because we can't assign the necessary values to the threat. We have a threat. Threats are not hazards. I Hang on, isn't that currently how we're taking the approach to, to control system security though? It seems to be this risk-driven approach. It is absolutely risk-driven and we get caught up in trying to manage and calculate what the risk is going to be by assuming we understand what the threats are going to be. But there's no real probability of the threat actor acting and that changes the risk because the adversary is going to be able to do something given the uh, combination perfect alignment of capability, opportunity and intent. Right. Completely different from that is the issue of safety, which is based on hazards, and we can calculate probabilistic failure rates for that. I really hope the future allows us to get to the point where we can provide asset owners with probabilistic numbers associated with security incidents, because then they will absolutely be able to take contemporary technologies and map it. Right now, we can't do this. We do constantly lose time and effort by trying to figure out what the probabilities are. We build use cases, we build abuse cases, we can build scenarios. What we can't do is accurately predict the probability of some adversary or some piece of malware or something having a negative impact in industrial automation. So would you say that the probabilistic risk assessment approach in the context of control systems is worth sticking with and improving and getting to the point where we have those probabilistic models, or do you think it would be better if national you know, critical infrastructure providers took the Department of Energy approach and just said, we're going to build this so that no one can mess with it, which would be very expensive. It, it, would, it would be very expensive. It would be very expensive. One of the things that we have to think about, I, I don't know where I sit saying that one is better than the other, but I do believe that the control system environment as it relates to critical infrastructure has the opportunity to use contemporary technologies and existing frameworks to understand what the risk is from a consequence perspective and not so much secure the systems against someone getting into it and tampering with it. But we are today able to include technology and aftermarket modifications to the systems that will almost guarantee that the system is going to perform as advertised, and even if an adversary were able to get in it under a certain set of conditions, couldn't manipulate the system to do something that it wasn't supposed to do. Or something catastrophic. Or something catastrophic. But what's very clear, which ties into your, your, your argument, is that these technologies are absolutely derivatives from military-based technologies to secure national security environments.
And I guess another thing that it comes down to is we could all get hit by a car tomorrow, couldn't we? We could all get hit by a car, we could have coronal mass ejections, all this kind of stuff. That... But, but we still leave the house. We, but, we still... <laughs> but we still leave the house. Mark Fabro, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.